name Jesus is probably the most well-known name in history. Perhaps we've heard of him, studied him, or even prayed to him. But how well do we really know him? Hi, this is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at West Valley Christian Church. In this series, we will be exploring Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and looking at his relationships, his words, and his actions. Our goal is drawing closer to the one who would rather die for you than live without you. We hope you enjoy. So it's interesting, Sarah prayed for the message this morning, uh, but as I was sitting there in my chair, I was thinking about those songs that we sang. You know, we sing songs every week, but if you were listening to the words and singing the words of the songs this morning, there were some powerful messages in those songs. You know, in the first song we sang, Come all you weary, come all you thirsty, come to the well that never runs dry. Drink of the water, come and thirst no more. In the second song, it said, Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. How powerful is that? You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And then in that last song, How Great Is Our God. You know, each of those songs, as we're singing this morning, has such a powerful, powerful message. Let's uh, just pray with me as as I begin. Father, we thank you so much just for your incredible love for us. We thank you for the words of those songs and for the truth, even more importantly, for the truth that is represented in those songs. And so we say thank you, Lord. We lift up this time, Lord, that as we have to spend in your word, and we just pray that you'd be glorified. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Pastor Rob and I actually started attending West Valley uh, roughly about the same time. I, I think I actually started coming a year or two before him. And as you, it's as obvious, I'm much, much younger than he is. And so when I started coming, um, I was still in high school uh, at the time. And, I, and I've mentioned this before, uh, but when I started coming, I, I started going to our high school Sunday school class. And our high school Sunday school class was taught by Steve Cook and Steve Benkert. I call it the Steves. And so it's really cool. Steve Cook is actually a missionary that we still support to this day. And Steve Benkert was in first service, and I saw him as I was preaching uh, this sermon. And so I went to their Sunday school class as a high schooler, and I, I was not really a churchgoer before this. And so I was a little bit disturbed because every single week I would come in and sit down, and all they would talk about was Jesus. Like every week, we talked about Jesus. And I was like, what is going on here? Why are these guys talking about nothing but Jesus? And I, I'm a little slow, but I eventually figured out that we were studying the Gospel of Matthew. And so, of course, if you're studying the Gospel of Matthew, every class is going to be about Jesus. Now, fast forward to today. You know, Pastor Rob is the one who writes out all our sermon series and picks what we're going to preach on. And so quite often when I'm preaching, I have no say, really, in what I'm preaching. I just get what he gives me, you know. And yet today I'm so excited because we started this new series and each of these sermons are going to be about Jesus, okay? Because in just a couple of weeks, we're going to be at Easter. And so we're, we're, we're preaching these sermons that are all about Jesus. And the truth is, no matter what you're preaching, no matter what sermon series, if a sermon doesn't at some point tie back to Jesus, you've probably just wasted people's time. That's how important Jesus really is. And so, 
If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. If you have a bulletin, it might be in there or it's going to be on the screen here. But in John chapter 8, we start in verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to her, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down. I wish it would have said, but Jesus being smarter than them. It doesn't say that. But it says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And so as I read through this story, every time I read through this story, there are some questions that I'm left with. There are some questions that I ask myself as I read this story. The first question I always ask is, why was this woman alone? Okay, if she was caught in the act of adultery, she clearly was not by herself, and yet she has been brought before Jesus by herself. Why was she alone? Now, her life was in danger. She had broken the law. She had broken the law in the Old Testament. But again, why is she alone? And the answer, I think, is found in verse 6. Because the truth is, I don't think the Pharisees really cared about this woman. I don't think the Pharisees really cared about justice. I don't think the Pharisees really cared about being obedient to the law. Verse 6 tells us they were just using this situation as an opportunity to try to trap Jesus. They were trying to put Jesus in a no-win situation. You ever been faced with that? You ever been asked a question and you're you're in a no-win situation? Many of us husbands have been in that situation many times, maybe even this morning, okay? I'm not going to give any examples. I don't want to incriminate myself. But sometimes we're in those no-win situations. That's what they were trying to do to Jesus. And so the second question I was asked is, what were they trying to accomplish? And like I said, they were trying to put Jesus in a situation where he faced a dilemma no matter how he responded. Like they were trying to put him in a situation where no matter what he said, it was going to be a problem for him. You know, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus was considered a friend of sinners. Now, he didn't excuse sin, but often his response to sinners was quite a bit different than the response given by the religious leaders of the day. And these Pharisees knew this. And so they thought, man, if Jesus responds to this woman with judgment like she deserves, it isn't going to fit into his character for who we've seen him to be. And you know, as you read through the Gospels, I believe Jesus hated sin. But as you read through the Gospels, it's clear that what he hated more than sin was that he loved sinners. Jesus loved sinners. Jesus didn't walk around like a guy who wanted to condemn people. He acted like a guy who wanted to forgive people people. The Bible tells us he didn't come to condemn. He came to seek and to save what was lost. And so if he condemns this woman, like the law in the book of Leviticus says that she deserves, that wouldn't fit into who his character was. 
The other problem, though, is this. If he doesn't condemn her sin and he lets her off the hook, then Jesus can be accused of ignoring the Old Testament law. He can be accused of ignoring the truth of what the Israelites were supposed to do. He's in, like I said, in a no-win situation. And we've read the story, and we know that Jesus is way too smart to be trapped by these men. And if you read through the Gospels, you notice these guys continuously tried to do this to Jesus. They were constantly coming to Jesus and trying to ask him questions. They were constantly trying to trick him and to trap him with his words. There's another situation in Matthew chapter 22. starts in verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Like verse 16, serious sucking up. Okay, in verse 16, but they don't really mean it. Okay, their heart isn't in it. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, man, you know, all throughout the Gospels, you read about Jesus knowing what was in people's minds and then nailing them with it. Just once I would love to have that ability, okay? Not right now, though. Okay, not right now. I think I understand what some of you are saying right now. But anyway, I, I just, it's so amazing that he, he was able to do that. And he says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. But they didn't stop there. In, later on in that chapter, another group, the Sadducees, came to Jesus and again tried to trap him in his words. And again, he was too smart to be trapped by them. So when we read in John chapter 8 that these people are trying to trap him with unanswerable or difficult questions, we're reminded that that isn't unusual. Jesus repeatedly faced dilemmas like he did with this woman. And so why is she alone? What were they trying to accomplish? The third question is, it's actually kind of an unanswerable question, but I always think to myself when I read through that, what was Jesus writing? Like, I don't know if any of you have ever thought about that as you read that scripture, but I can't help but think about, like, what was Jesus writing? You don't read of him doing this kind of thing. And so this is my theory, okay? Let me be clear. This is my theory. I don't know for sure what Jesus was writing. But I imagine that as he bent down and he's scanning the crowd, like if I scanned the crowd right now and came up with some names, okay? As I was scanning the crowd and I was looking at them names, and then I bent down. And I started writing some of your guys' names down in the dirt on the carpet up here. And then he's like, hey, if you have no sin, you'd be the first one to throw the stone. And then I imagine him bending down again and him going, okay, I've written your names. Now I'm going to go a little bit further. I'd imagine him writing next to, he wrote down Nathaniel earlier. And I imagine, I imagine him writing down lust and greed I imagine him going to the name Zeb. There's probably a guy named Zeb in this audience, okay, at this time. Not you there, but there. Zeb is there. And I imagine him writing down the words pride and envy. I imagine there being a guy named Michael in the crowd that day. And I imagine him writing down and going, hey, liar, thief. Okay, the reality is we're all sinners. And so I imagine as Jesus is writing, I imagine him writing this down. Now, I don't know that for sure. That's just my theory. I'm, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to stick with that. You don't have to believe that. 
Okay? Some people in the early church, and I don't know why this became a thought, but early in the church they thought he wrote down Jeremiah 17, 13 in the, gra- in the ground, which says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Maybe that is what he wrote, and we can't know for sure. But the last question I always ask myself, and actually I, I do this whenever I read any scripture, is this. What can we learn from this story? What can we learn from this story today? The first thing I think we could learn is this, that judgment should be left to Jesus. Judgment should be left to Jesus. Can you all agree with me that we live in very judgmental times? Like you don't actually have to be guilty of anything to be found guilty by people. Like nothing has to be proven in order for you to be considered guilty in the eyes of many people today. You know, we really ought to leave judgment to Jesus. We ought, to, we ought to wait until the facts are known in certain situations. And even then, let's still go ahead and leave it up to Jesus. Okay, so I want you to think in this story. We have three main characters. We have Jesus, we have the woman caught in adultery, and we have the Pharisees. Now let me help you out here as you try to identify with one of these. None of us are Jesus, okay? None of us are Jesus. Now, I will say this, having said that, even though none of us are Jesus, you and I ought to be striving to be like him. Okay, so none of us are Jesus, but we ought to be striving to be like him. So who do you identify with? I've said it before, and I'll say it again. As you look through the Gospels, when Jesus comes across the path of sinners, they find grace and they find mercy. But when Jesus comes across people that are arrogant and self-righteous, they find judgment and they find condemnation. The sinner that recognizes that they are a sinner finds grace and mercy. And so if you're listening today, and maybe as you listen to that story, you identify with that woman. You, you know that you're, you are lost because of your sin. I want you to know that Jesus is offering grace and mercy to you today. He's offering grace and mercy to you today. If, you, if I read that story, and you may be a bit more like those Pharisees, my words to you would be, just watch out, okay? And, and, I, and I, I don't mean to insult us, because it's not necessarily you as you're sitting here, but you know, way too often in the church, we as Christians are way too much like those Pharisees. Like, like we become Christians, and it's so easy for us to become judgmental. It's so easy for us to start condemning people because they don't think like we do. And as you read through the Gospels, that isn't what Jesus did. That isn't what his people were supposed to be like. Like I said, this woman, she found grace. But people who considered themselves righteous, the the people that had lost sight of their need for grace and mercy, those are the ones that find harshness from Jesus. And again, I don't want to minimize this woman's sin or anybody's sin, But as Christians, we need to make sure that we remember that we aren't any better than she was. We need to remember that we are all sinners. We need to remember that the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. That is what we all deserve. And so you may be sitting here today, and you may not feel it. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Let me just say this. But you may not feel as bad as that woman, but guess what? We all are. None of us are any better than her. And again, it's way too easy for us to act like those Pharisees in the gospel. It's way too easy for us to be judgmental and narrow-minded. And so 
you know, however you would put this, but the worst of sinners. Now, Paul calls himself the worst of sinners, so that kind of lets you know who we really are. But it says the worst of sinners should be able to walk through our doors, should be able to be watching online, and should be able to find God's grace and God's mercy. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Be careful how you judge, is what I would say after reading that. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Like we may think the plank is gone from our eyes, but you know what? There's still splinters in there. We're constantly having to work at these things. I don't want to be a sinner, but I know that I am. You know, whenever I preach, I'm reminded that I'm a sinner. The devil tries to remind me that I'm a sinner because he's saying, hey, you shouldn't be up there. You don't have any business saying this. But you know what? God reminds me also that I'm a sinner. I think it's a reminder that God wants to say, hey, stay humble, and oh, by the way, I love you, and I've already forgiven you. So our response to sin ought to be compassion. Our response to sin ought to be compassion. You know, something tells me in this story in John chapter 8, this woman didn't need a group of people telling her that she was a sinner. I think most people already know that they're lost. I mean, they may not know what they need to do. They may not need to know how they need to change. But most people already feel guilty enough. And they don't need anybody else piling on them. They don't need people on the street corners yelling at them. They don't need people bullying them on social media or anything like that. That's not who Jesus was. Listen to who Jesus was. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, like his stomach was turned because of his compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. Jesus saw the lost and had compassion. In Luke 4, verses 18 through 19, he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, we aren't Jesus, but we have been given the job of sharing that message with the world around us. And so when people feel broken by sin, you know what? Those are people that we should be welcoming into our church, into our lives to help them see the love of God. And I, I fear for how many people are broken and afraid, and yet they're still terrified to come to church because they're certain they're just going to find more judgment when they get there. Uh, Pastor Rob and I uh, have a book that is, uh, both of us, I think it's one of our favorite books. It's called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And it's just an incredible book. He writes some things in this book that will make you very uncomfortable. Uh, but it's a very challenging book. And, and actually, he tells this story. Right at the start of this book, he tells this story of a woman. And it's a story that he tells in another one of his books as well. So that'll tell you how much he loves this story or how powerful he thinks it is. Because he shares it in two different books of his. 
But this woman had made a lot of bad decisions, and she'd done a lot of things that we as Christians would be horrified by. And so she was a sinner, no doubt. But as this person was trying to help her, the person asked her if she'd ever considered going to church. And so in the book, the auntie writes this, says, at last I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I'll never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. I feel like that's such a sad statement for so many churches. I hope that's not true of us here. And he follows up and he says, what struck me about my friend's story is that the woman, like the, or women like this woman, women like this woman, fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a, pen, a person felt about themselves, the more likely they were to see Jesus as a refuge. And that ought to be true still today. The worse a person feels, they ought to be able to look at a church, look at our church, look at any church, and instead of being a place where they're going to find condemning and judgment, it should be a place where they come in to find grace and mercy. It should be an oasis, a refuge for sinners. You know, Jesus tells another story. He tells a story of what's called the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18. And it goes like this, and, and we would do well to pay attention to what it says. So then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, some of you are going to be counting 70 times seven. Okay, I'm done. That isn't Jesus' point. His point is that you should never stop forgiving your brother or your sister. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. That's a lot of money. He owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Awesome. But then, but when that servant, the guy who's just been forgiven... 10,000 bags of gold's worth of debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't, I, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. So not only does this, show, this story show us that we are to forgive people in our lives, but it also serves, to me, I think it serves as a warning. You and I, as Christians, we had a debt paid that we could not fulfill. We owed, we owed way more than 10,000 bags of gold. And yet because of Jesus, we have been forgiven. Our debts have been wiped away. And we are to treat people like Jesus did or in wood, in this parable. You know, we are no one's master. But as Christians, the, the, the master in this story is our role model. 
And yet too often, I think we end up being like that unmerciful servant, the one who has been forgiven but doesn't remember and then doesn't show grace and mercy. I said it before, but Jesus and our church and his church ought to be a refuge for lost people today. So are you a sinner? Well, the answer for all of us is yes. But if you're a sinner and you're here today or you're watching today, you're in the right place. This is exactly where you should be. Now, having said all that, just because Jesus was the friend of sinners and people found grace and mercy, it doesn't mean that he didn't take sin seriously. Because as we think about this story, we're also reminded of the seriousness of sin. And back in our story in John chapter 8, verse 10 says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't condemn her, but he also lets her know that she needs to make some changes in her life. He doesn't condemn her, but he doesn't ignore her sin. You know, for for several years now, I've been reading through the Bible. I do a read through the Bible in a year plan. And I do that just because it helps me stay disciplined. I'm not saying that's what everybody has to do, but I like it because it just helps me to stay disciplined. I like something telling me what I need to do every day, okay? And so I've done it for several years, and it's been so great because I feel as I do that, every year that I do that, again and again and again, I see more and more patterns in the Bible. Not weird patterns that nobody else understands, not that kind of pattern stuff, but like patterns of how God operates, and what God thinks about different things. And as I'm reading through the Bible year after year, I'm constantly struck with actually how seriously God takes sin. And as I read through it and I see how seriously God takes sin, I'm disturbed by how casual I am about sin sometimes. As I read through it and I see how seriously God takes sin, I'm disturbed by how casual I see us as Christians being about sin. God isn't, God isn't okay with our sin. And God wants us to change. He wants us to do something different. In Leviticus chapter 26, he's telling the Israelites, he's saying, listen, verses 3 through 13, it's all talking about the blessings of obedience. And listen, let me tell you, I still believe that God wants to bless us because of our obedience. Okay? Um, but then if you read the rest of the chapter, verses 14 through 39, a lot more verses, it's all of the punishment for disobedience to God's commands. And, and again, I don't want to hammer this point because I want us all to find God's grace, but Jesus didn't overlook her sin and Jesus doesn't overlook our sin. He called her and he's called us to live differently. You and I ought to live differently than this world is living. You and I should not be living like our neighbors live. You and I shouldn't be living like the people around us at work live. Our mouths should be different. The things that we say should be different. Our behavior should be different. Why? Because we're better than anybody? We are not. We should be different because of what God has done for us. Because he cares about how we live. And ultimately, because he is God, he knows what's best for us. That's really what it comes down to. Who knows what's best for us for real? Is it me or is it God who created me? I'm going to stick with the fact that it's God who created me that knows what is the best. You know, the title of our sermon today is uh, He Stooped for You. And that obviously alludes to Jesus getting down in the dirt and, and kind of writing something. But even more important than the idea that Jesus stooped down for this woman and he would do that for us. You know, we're only three weeks away from Easter. 
But each week at church, we take communion. And so what's even more important than he stoops for us is we need to be reminded each and every week that he died for us. He died for us. And so if he died for me, if he died for you, then my response and your response ought to be to live for him and to treat people the way that he would have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Father, I thank you for this story in John chapter 8. Lord, I pray that you would help my life, help me to recognize the sin that I have and the changes that I need to make. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be a person that, that lost sinners would find hope in. Lord, I pray for us as a church, Lord, that if someone came in here feeling terrible and down because of the choices that they've made, that they would find your hope and your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Father. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remember, Lord, your tender mercies and your love. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at wvcch.org or you can join us live in one of our Sunday services. Have a great day.